Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we hear from a career investment banker who also took the reins as a CEO of a gold exploration company that he ended up selling successfully. Howard Katz is a managing director at Mackey Research Capital and joins us to discuss banking and company building. It's rare to find somebody who's worked in both capacities, so you're going to hear some unique insights. We discussed a number of things relating to raising capital to grow your business, and our primary focus was on the growth of public companies and how you can leverage your investment banker and the relationships with them. Now, given the crazy hours that bankers tend to work, I appreciate that Howard made the time to speak with us. He certainly brings a lot of interesting perspectives, so I hope you enjoy this episode. On the line, I have Howard Katz. Howard, I want to say thank you for making the time. I think this will be a really interesting interview. Well, thanks for having me, Corey. This is interesting. I, I, you've been in both investment banking as well as running a public exploration company. So you've been on both sides of the street, and I'm looking forward to our interview there. But I think the best way to do this is if you share a bit about yourself so we can lay the groundwork for our conversation. So what do you say? I'll pass it over to you, and we can uh, get some history on you. Okay, sure, Corey. So I've been in the investment banking world for going on 20 years. Uh, Started probably in the late 90s. A firm called Yorkton Securities, uh, very active in the innovation space. We were one of the leaders of the time and really built up my career from there. Was I've been working with Mackey Research, where I'm currently employed as a managing director, probably for about 15 years in total. You're right, I, I did take uh, some time off uh, to run my own private mining exploration and development company called Tamaka Gold. So you know, when I speak to my clients and my partners, I like to think I bring both the finance side and the operational side uh, to the table when I'm uh, working with clients, for sure. Mm. Sorry, I, I mentioned it was public, but as a private operator, you ended up selling to a public company. Yes, that's, that's okay. correct. Yeah. That's where, yeah. yeah. Now, I think let's start there because how do you see your investment banking career helping you build in your company. What kind of experiences did you extract from that that, that you'd want other CEOs to, to know? Because, I mean, financing and, and investment banking is such a key role in, in growing both public and private companies. So there, there's got to be some interesting experiences you took from that. Where can we go from there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that at the heart of most companies, I would even suggest all companies, you have to be cognizant of your financial resources and how to leverage them. And regardless of whatever business you're in, at the heart of it, there is a requirement to be able to fund your operations properly in a timely fashion so that you can execute your business plan. And, you know, depending on what sector, I would suggest that most of them are, you know, profit oriented. 
So being able to have the right finance uh, finances in place in order to be able to leverage the company's uh, business opportunities is often critical. And you know, I've often worked with a lot of companies that do have a lot of growth plans ahead of them in the technology space. So you know, working with those management teams to be able to execute their business plan with the addition of capital, and we're talking about the right type of capital is very important. So, I mean, what do I mean by right type of capital? You know, capital does take all kinds of form. There's there's public market capital, there's private market capital, there's equity, there's debt and, and variations thereof. So, you know, making sure there is an alignment between the company, the management and the investors is often very key. And I think that's where, you know, a good investment banking firm and investment bankers can play a, a critical role. So what I, what I hear there, I think you, you're touching on something that is really important. There's when it comes to a financing event, it's such a, a critical aspect of a company. But then working with a good investment banking team, you're suggesting you'd be able to help that company identify the kind of capital they need. And if I had an, a relationship with you and I came in and said, I need 5 million bucks and I'm thinking equity. Yep. Would you turn and say, you know what, I think doing a, a convertible debt or even a private offering is better? Is, you know, how does that relationship evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. So where I generally start is if the company is relatively new, we just sort of, I try to look at every company with like a bit of a clean slate. So let's just really sort of throw down on the table kind of where the company's at, where the history of the company has led them to this point in time and try to understand exactly where it is they're going. And, you know, there's broad, you know, there's some broad distinctions, but private versus public, are they, uh, do they want to go public? You know, there's, there's all these types of conversations, but let's just sort of say, for example, there's a company, it's private still, and they're considering going public. And they're saying, they're asking me, Howard, you know, we're thinking about going public. What are our financing options? So in that regard, I would, sort of lay out to them what I think their their best course of action is. Sometimes the best course of action is to go public. Sometimes the best course of action is to stay private. It really it really depends on really what some of the business objectives of the company are. So, you know, if, if a company wants to stay private, then approaching private equity players, players who, who are comfortable investing into private company, that's that is an area that has grown tremendously. Especially, you know, if we look at investors like the VC world, a lot of technology companies today, there's a flourishing VC market, some jurisdictions, and so there is a lot of investment activity in that realm. There's other companies that just say, Howard we think that we'd like to go public and, and there's different types of investors who go into go public deals. And so we can ideally work with anchor investors that then sort of drive the process forward for a company to go public. Now, lots to go, lots of places we can go here. Yeah. From your position as an investment banker and a company comes to you and says, we're looking to raise capital. Is there specific areas that you focus? Because I would imagine a, a tech company that needs venture capital, and, and I'm talking private venture capital, they probably wouldn't approach you or you probably wouldn't work with them. And I might be wrong, but if they needed public venture capital for an exploration deal as an example, maybe they would work yeah. with you. So what kind of companies do you work with? And, and maybe you could walk us through the process of how that, how that evolves and how that becomes the relationship to, to raise the capital yeah. and where you go from there. 
I mean, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it is about stage. So, you know, if a company is just looking to do a seed round, uh, let's talk about technology companies because I am currently working with innovation and technology companies in Canada and as another jurisdiction, a speciality of mine is in Israel. So talking to companies from these jurisdictions, generally speaking, I'm looking to work with companies that have an established business. There has been a you know, a, a significant amount of money invested in the enterprise to date. They don't necessarily have to be cash flow positive, or and in fact, in some cases, I'm dealing with companies that are that are pre-revenue. But I'm generally speaking looking to work with companies that have an established business and are really at that inflection point where they are ready to, you know, transition their business plan to either an operational phase or a growth phase. So I'm looking for for companies that can typically be invested into that will then generate uh, top line sales and have a compelling sort of growth story that will drive a, a sort of a risk return thesis whereby, yes, there is and I'm just upfront, there's definitely considerable risk in, in a lot of these investments. But that being said, there's also considerable reward for investors who are willing to take on this risk. And we try to, to match up people who are sophisticated in this regard that can understand what exactly is happening and can be supportive shareholders in this endeavor. Now, you make a, a point there about the risk return thesis. And mm-hmm. you, part of the role that you have there is helping that company, perhaps it's wrong to say package package them up, but really make them, position them to be most saleable to the the group of investors you think would want to bite on that deal. Is that that safe to say? And and from a risk return thesis, you have to look at it and pull your narrative out of that. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, we definitely help companies with their with their overall presentation. And you're right. So there is positioning. I, I, I like that phrase that there is a positioning of the company to, and really a matching of the company of their message to the right constituent investors. Not not all, as you know, not all investments fit all types of investors. So there's it's important for us to be mindful of that in terms of both the messaging and who we message to. Now, now, I know we've definitely veered off of track of the questions that we started with right off the bat, but <laughs> I think this is just such, such an important discussion for the audience because I think the world of investment banking can be misunderstood. So, so hearing your points here is why I'm, I'm taking us down this path, but this will be a quick one on the, with investment banking, what's the kind of bite size that you'd be wanting to work with? If somebody approaches you and says, I need a million bucks, I would imagine you'd say, I'm not for you. When would you step in? Yeah, you know what? I mean, the truth is we, we've developed a, a number of uh, different programs for di- different companies in different stages. So, and again, it's about, you know, matching up the companies with the right sort of investors and, and, and really programs and, to, and, and understanding. So actually within the last year, I've, we've been piloting a new program where we basically act as advisors to you know, what I call, uh, I think you referenced it, sort of public venture capital deals where companies have a relatively small capitalization, even sub 10. So I guess these would be considered micro cap, sub $10 million in market capitalization. And a lot of these companies are really looking in the public sphere, at least anyways, to raise 
you know, somewhere between one to $2 million to either ramp up their business or execute a certain phase in their growth um, trajectory. So, and I've been very pleasantly surprised to see some really cool opportunities emerge where investors need that level of capital and can really create some interesting outsized results based on sort of the infusion of that sort of level of capitalization. Hmm. So, you know, we do help out companies in that regard. So as, so as low as, as that, primarily in the public sphere, and it's been really you know, I'm upfront with with investors. You know, generally speaking, pursuant to our package, they'll have some of their own you know network, and we introduced our network, and we're able to, you know, in this collaborative way, build up a financing of of those types of sizes. So that's something interesting that we've been working on, sort of almost like a uh, public markets lab, if you will, yeah, yeah, uh, that's to, cul- to cultivate these types of ideas. Like and a there's a broader discussion. Accelerator. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Public venture accelerator. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. But traditional banking, generally speaking, in my world, when we talk about, you know, Mackey's focus, our firm's sort of platform focus, we generally speaking will finance companies in the 10 to $50 million space rather in sort of financing sizes. It does, it does vary to some degree. I mean, we go up and down you know, sort of the goalposts, we're, we're sort of between the 10, we, we tend to specialize in 10 to $50 million financings. That's our sweet spot. Could go larger, could go smaller. And generally speaking, in the public sphere, although we have been working with some private companies as well. And so the opportunities are of that size and magnitude as well. Okay. Now, here's, uh, I think, something that is important for anybody engaging investment bank, and not just a banker, but the bank going beyond just the the financing or raising the money there's there's other services that the bank can bring to the company and that can be research and that can be you know trading and so on how should a company identify and find a strong bank and banker that's a great question you know as you alluded to that there are a couple of pillars in in an investment bank there's the investment banking department. And so we assist companies, the sort of structuring and advisory pieces of the of their requirements. But then you're right, there's a trade desk, there's, there's uh, people who trade, trade the stock and actually are actively engaged in the trading of a specific security. There's a research department, we have research analysts. And then we also have uh, sales professionals that assist in the distribution of securities to to a wide variety of uh, investors, typically on the institutional level size. So whether it be funds or family offices or, or investors like that. The fact of the matter is today, my observation is that you know, everyone seems to be wearing a, a couple of hats at firms. So if you're a salesperson, sometimes they'll have a, you know, a good feel for some corporate finance ideas. Research analysts tend to also talk in terms of corporate finance ideas. And bankers also, you know, have a network of their own investors that they just, you know, help facilitate investment opportunities for companies. So there really is sort of a blending of functions. And I think that as you deal with more seasoned and experienced uh, professionals, that that's just sort of a natural progression where bankers will have relationships with accounts and you'll have salespeople with relationships with issuers. So I think that it is somewhat synergistic. I think that, you know, a company wants to be able to deal with professionals that that can help them not just 
you know, sort of structure a deal, but that can also help them on the execution of deals, right? So, and it, and it really depends on the level of, of the company and, and sort of the needs, but that's how I feel that companies can be best served is by having a multidisciplinary approach. Sometimes it's with one or two departments and sometimes it's it's and, and ideally it's it's having a few departments working in coordination with each other to to service the uh, client yeah to help spread the word provide enough information tailor in and and nail in on a a niche of of where the bank's specific investor relationship land and and can be leveraged there's a lot there yeah absolutely yeah we can go on it we can talk at it for quite some time for sure yeah, for sure. What what I'd like to do actually is take us back to the interesting aspect of your career because you left investment banking and and then led to Maca Gold and you saw that yeah. to an exit. Yeah. Can you walk us through that up to the the founding of it or the you know when you stepped in sure. selling experience that there's there's stuff there that we need to dig into. Yeah. So it was one of those circumstances. I'd been, I guess, at Mackey for it was close to a decade. And so I was open to new challenges and ways to really challenge myself. And I think I was, you know, really determined to create some shareholder value. I had, you know, financed the gold and silver sector primarily for a number of years. And in my own mind, at least I was an expert. So I decided to use that expertise to apply it to a project that was presented to me that um, the uh, founders of the company. It just so happened that they were both very capable men, but they were also in, in their late 70s. So they were they were looking to advance the project, but they also recognized that they needed some younger blood, so to speak, to step in in on the day to day management side. So, kind of one thing led to another, and and I, I decided to join the project, uh, the company rather, because they had a, an exciting project in it, and basically raised. In successive rounds, in total, about $25 million went privately into the company. And this was in a gold environment where gold had sort of, it was actually approaching $2,000. So it was a, you know, exciting time for gold. And this was at the beginning of 2010, I believe. So we raised the capital most about $20 million at the outset. You know, the idea was to then take the company public. What happened, in fact, though, was that gold price actually started to decline and the investment appetite in the sector began to wane. And as we looked to take the company public, it was increasingly clear to us the ability to take the company public in a receptive gold environment was, you know, unfortunately, the window had passed. And so what we then decided to do was make the strategic decision that, okay, we're going to keep the company private. What we then did is revamped our work plans and revised our work plans to sort of match what we now perceive to be our ability or relatively limited ability to, to access capital in the conventional public market way. We then set about trying to build value in, in an environment where we where we thought we were going to be capital constrained. So, you know, give you a sense of it though, we had a resource that we modeled at a million ounces when I took over the project, and then when I we had modeled the project out based on our work programs, you know, five years later we had we had increased the resource from about one million ounces to about in aggregate uh, four million ounces, right? 
So if that was sort of a, an accomplishment that we were proud of, it was a challenge because, you know, again, we, we had sort of had plans to go public within about a year or so of having raised the initial private capital. And, you know, ultimately we, we ended up being uh, private for about five years until we ultimately sold our company to another entity, to another public company, which was, I would say on absolute and relative metrics was a, was a success. We were very pleased with the results. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we couldn't necessarily discuss, but it, it ultimately led to a successful asset exit. I mean, we had probably close to 40 NDAs out by the end of our activities at the point where we exited. So, you and, know, we were very busy, busy on that regard. Yeah, and when you're saying 40 NDAs, 40 non-disclosures, why yeah. do you use that as a metric, uh, an indicator or something? What do you mean by that? Well, yeah. So, so interestingly, so we, we basically decided to, you know, look at our, like what, what I'm a big believer that if a company is, is looking to build value, it's important for a company to maximize the number of options available to it in uh, the mining space. The natural resource space, a lot of it has to do with uh, M&A, right? So mergers and acquisitions, people need to understand that most successful companies build themselves by by definitely organically building their projects, but but also by taking on projects that could then be, you know, further developed with company larger companies that that have the financial resources or just the ability to to move a project uh, forward as as part of a portfolio as as opposed to sort of standalone. So you know, what we then did was ensure that we had a good information flow with a whole number of prospective partners or suitors or investors, or we really just made sure that we kept the information flow as active as possible so that at any given point, people knew where we were in our development cycle. And, you know, circumstances at companies are continually changing. Some companies looked at our project and, you know, said, well, you know, we like it, but just sort of doesn't meet sort of our our requirements at this time because, you know, they may be looking at different jurisdictions or they may be looking for different sizes or different deposit types. You know, there's a whole variety of reasons why a company may or may not, you know, be interested in a company at, at a given point in time. But what we also recognize is that people's criteria do change, right? So corporate directions do change. Like if a company, for example, was doing business in some part of, I don't know, I'm just going to say, well, I don't want to malign a jurisdiction. So I'll just say that <laughs> they had operations, they had operations in a certain area and those operations now are under political you know, threat. So, you know, whereas before they didn't look so closely at our operations because they were focused elsewhere now, now because of, you know, some political considerations that they were now relatively speaking more attractive. So, you what know, I'm taking away from this though is, is you know, yeah. you, you noted that you had about 40 NDAs out, but really what you're doing is, is creating a market for yourself. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. And shopping yourself out and keeping the op- you know, the the value of optionality there and 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 focusing strategically to make sure that you had that is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that in in my observation in the, in the resource world for sure and and frankly in other in other businesses it is important within reason to try to maximize the optionality for any one 
company because you never know. Like someone, it, it may it may not be necessarily a takeout, but a bigger player can decide, you know what, I'm going to dip my toe in the water and, and make a strategic investment uh, into this entity because, you know what, they've been good about the information flow. We're comfortable with these guys. We want to take it to the next step. It's not a takeout, but we want to advance our business relationship. And sometimes mm-hmm. that can take the form of a strategic investment or, you know, or a joint venture or, you know, a variety of different other partnership models that then can lead to you know, a further creation of value. And then and some entities are very happy to, you know, once they, in their mind, have de-risked a couple of factors in their own, in their own calculations that then they're very happy to pay even more for the entire enterprise if it makes strategic sense to them. You took Tamaka down the path. You, you, you saw it through to an exit, to a sale, to, to first mining. And as I understand, that was an all-stock deal. Yeah. What did you learn from that? Yeah, so I mean, we use I used it to. There was some monetization, and there was basically a commitment to you know continue in in, in the story because I believed in the projects that the company had. Here's a question for you. So, what's easier, being a banker or an entrepreneur? Oh, that's a great question. The truth is, is that I think in both roles you have your good days and you have your challenging days. You know, I think the challenges are you know perhaps a bit different. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur you face the challenges of your business every day. And so you're able to do a, you know, a, a deep dive into, you know, the operational and strategic and, you know, even the tactical challenges that, that you have to address and, and, and advance your company through, you know, as a banker and Frank, what I've embarked to do is to be less transactional and more partnership focused. But at the end of the day, you know, as a banker, I am working on multiple transactions at any given time. And so, whereas the ability to, to, to do a deep dive and sort of have this sort of sense of ownership in a company, it's not the same as when you're a banker, you know, you, you, you are there for specific purposes in order to help the company grow and evolve. And so, as much as you can be a partner, you don't necessarily have the insider view as, as, as much as you'd like you're used to as, as an entrepreneur, right? So, but that being said, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, you don't necessarily have the same views or access to capital that, that, that an investment banker might have. So it's really is, it's, it is a bit of a different, uh, they really are, they do offer different challenges and rewards, I find. Having been, well, it's interesting to be on both sides, but now back in the investment banking arena, as you say, you, you work on you know, multiple transactions at a time and deal flow is important to you and finding good deals is, is you know, obviously going to make your life as a banker easier and making the capital come through better, you know, better terms, better quality capital. When a, a CEO is pitching you as a banker, where are they usually falling short? What could they be doing better? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, you know, generally speaking, there's a very basic question that sometimes needs to be addressed in, in these pitches that, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why they hire guys like, like, like me, is to like, you know, okay, wh- why should we, an investor here, be act today to really invest in a company, right? So somehow the entrepreneurs sometimes lose focus of the fact that at the end of the day, when investors look at at a stock, there, there's there's a variety of factors that that feed into an investment decision. And so, you know, if if the presentation doesn't flow through to to ultimately create a an investment decision, then sometimes investors are sort of left, 
you know, wondering as to, okay, well, I understand that maybe you're trying to address this issue, but how does that work for me as an investor? How does how's that going to translate into, okay, why I should buy your stock? So sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect and I find that, but with working with, with, um, Working with uh, management teams, you know, we help them refine their their stories, and it does help to just be open to the idea that you know the presentation itself is is a bit of a living document, right? And so it, it gets updated both on external factors and internal factors, right? So you know, internally, you know, it has to reflect the sort of the evolution of your business, and externally, it also has to reflect the changing circumstances that surround any business at any given time. So, and I think you know most management teams recognize this, that, that you do need to treat your, your investor pitch as a, a living document. It is somewhat of, it's an investor pitch, but it's also a management presentation. And, and the two need to be sort of fused together with this idea that, you know, this is how this company is operating in an investment in, environment. So, and, and I find that sometimes, you know, management teams fall a little bit short in that regard. That document can change almost by the hour. You know, it's not as though you, you set, put together your, your management presentation, your pitch deck, and then it carries you through a financing. It changes every pitch, at least in, in my experience. You know, you tweak to make sure that you're, you're landing the message correctly and you adjust as you go through the, uh, through the paces with the investors you're working with. So- well, yeah, because it's, it, there's, you're, always, you're constantly, ideally, you should be getting, you know, feedback continually from investors and certain questions might be posed that your your deck didn't address. And so having received that information or internalized that, I say, okay, well, you know, going forward, I think that's a good question that ought to be addressed in in future presentations. So you, you incorporate that. I mean, you know, just the other day, I was talking to a CEO and CFO that they, they wanted to present their use of proceeds slides. And I said, well, if you present your use of proceeds in this way, you know, the emphasis is, I think, misaligned. And so you need to sort of reorder it. And so that they could, you know, investors can, you know, understand exactly where your first priority is in terms of use of capital. So, you know, just stuff like that, where it's, it could be just as simple as, as ordering and just emphasis because the investors, you know, you have an hour with typically with an investor when you make your pitch and they're going to come to a lot of conclusions as to whether they A, want to invest or not, or B, they just, or, or they want to continue to do some more diligence or C, they're going to say, okay, well, look, they, they didn't check a lot of boxes. And so we're not going to continue to, to do work here. So it's important to try to be mindful and to incorporate the feedback that you continually get uh, on these uh, marketing, these road, these either non-deal roadshow or deal roadshows. It's, it's always the, the feedback is critical mm. and, and the feedback, you're right. It does go into the pitch. Can and, you, can and, you clarify yeah. quick the, for, sure. for the listeners, the, di- the difference between a, a non-deal and a deal roadshow? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you're a public company, it's, you know, for better or for worse, you have to live your life out in someone in the public, right? So you're constantly looking to engage investors using a variety of different platforms in order to have them sort of ideally, if you're the CEO, have a favorable view of your company and 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 either decide to invest or whether it be in the public market, or sometimes if there's a deal, they'll, they'll invest in a deal. So a non-deal roadshow is just sort of like, okay, we're out in the public, you know, we're just out there educating the public. 
and there's real no there's no special agenda uh, per se. It's just other than to say, okay, here's our company. Oftentimes, we'll have, for example, CEOs come to our branch in Toronto, and we have a big boardroom, and we'll we'll have a lunch presentation. You know, and where investment advisors will will come to listen to the pitch of the CEO, and they will take away information that they can then share to their their clients. And their clients may decide to invest, you know, buy shares based on, hey, you know, we, we heard this CEO come in and, and talk and we like the business and we think there's some upside. So, so people may go and buy shares in the marketplace. For a deal roadshow, that is usually a concentrated set of meetings where, okay, there's been an announcement made there's, uh, that there's a financing. And so now uh, prospective investors have a decision to make. Companies coming in looking for capital and do I want to participate in, in this deal? Yes or no. So that typically will happen depending on the size of deal over if it's a relatively small deal of like say 10 or $20 million, it could be, you know, done in, in a number, be done in a, in a function of a couple of days or if it's a larger transaction of say 100 or 200 million dollars, you know there might be a two or three week marketing schedule where people are, you know, management team is literally going almost all over the world to to solicit institutional interest, you know. And sometimes the non-deal road shows also help the investors to have an, a formed opinion about the prospects of a deal. In, in advance of a deal roadshow. So priming the market is, is important. So the, the non-deal roadshows are important, not just to get, you know, buying support in the market on a sort of regular basis, but it also helps, you know, inform institutions as to the progress of the company so that when a deal does come, they're up the curve and can make an, an investment decision in a much more informed and, and, and quick manner. With that, priming the market, building the relationships there. And I want to drive back to another point you made earlier that you're looking to do more, more advisory or more relationship building and longer term work with your clients than just transactional work. That actually brings me to the next point of one of our previous guests and interviews, Anthony Malevsky of, of Conic and uh, Cobalt 27 made a really interesting point that CEOs need to invest in relationships with their investment bankers. Oftentimes, even before he said that, I always just thought the relationship with your banker is likely going to be transactional. They come in, they open the doors to some investors, you get the money, hopefully, and then you walk. And then you start, try to you know, keep building your company. He says that's wrong. And, and you've said that, that you want to, and that you are working on doing more longer term relationship building. What, what can you say about that? Yeah, I know that's an excellent point. And, and certainly, you know, as a function of my experience over the years, I certainly have moved more into a direct advisory role with a lot of the companies, especially companies that are relatively new to the public market capitals and just frankly, just need the sort of the experience and guidance of someone who's who's been there. Because there's always new companies entering into the public market sphere. I think that with the right set of advice, they can, you know, avoid some pitfalls or mistakes or, or frankly, structured deals. You know, I just had a client uh, last night who was saying that, you know, they did. And again, it was a, it's a relatively smaller cap company, but like again, it, it's the CEO's first public uh, company, and and he was he was appreciative. I I thought 
of some of the uh, advice and, and guidance I gave him with respect to a couple of points on uh, an acquisition he was making. And what I, what I find now is that there's a much more of a collaborative uh, event just in sort of the day-to-day advancements of his company. And so I'm actually working more in a consultative uh, process than I ever have before, and I and I find that you know candidly much more rewarding, just on a personal level, and 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 just and just more effective, you know, as as this guy is rolling out his business, you know, than than whereas before, it, yeah, it was more transactive. I mean, ultimately, a, a good I think a good investment banker does have you know deep relationships with their clients, but it really depends on how you form those those relationships and over what period of times. And so I find that, you know, the, the best time to form the relationships is really when you're dealing with management teams that are just relatively speaking young and they need, they need to help the most. And so, you know, there's just sort of this relationship that's developed and, and, and it trust that's built up over time that can't be forged any other way. So I, that's why I'm kind of excited to, to work with uh, some of these earlier stage companies because it does, it does afford me, you know, here I am, you know, a 20 year veteran, I'm able to sort of help out companies and just say, look, you know, th- this is the most effective way in my view that you can, you can do this. And I, and I have the experience to be able to share with them as opposed to just in my own experience where if I was a two or three year old banker, I would not have been able to share the same level of, of experience with um, some some of these companies. So, so it's a function of a couple things. It's a function of just my level of experience, what I'm able to offer at this stage in my career to to clients and in my willingness and ability to, to try to help clients try to, to, to build their, their companies up. With that, I mean, with that experience comes, uh, I like to look at it sometimes like mental models or, or even checklists that, that you have and ways that you approach the deals that you see. Now, when, when financing or from a financing and an advisory role, do you have a, a thought process or a mental model you go through when sizing up opportunities? Yeah. I mean, I, I look at, first of all, I mean, I look at the management team and I, and I, and I, and I make sure that I'm comfortable with the integrity of the team. That's, you know, first and foremost, and then I do a deeper dive on the the business and the the business of, of the business prospects of the company. And if I like both of them, that's usually at a high level. You know, a, you know, a green light for me to, to try to in, investigate whether I can develop a, um, a you know a good working relationship with uh, you know a good a good relationship with these companies. So as I drill down, I mean, I'm looking to see their corporate governance structure, trying to understand their, their operational requirements. You know, usually I'm happy to sign an NDA where they'll, they'll, you know, share with me some more of their, you know, internal forecasts and uh, longer term requirements and just trying to get understand, you know, trying to get a better understanding as to, you know, how we can best serve, serve them over their sort of their planned corporate growth. And to yeah. me, I mean, that's your due diligence process and having to dig in and start to turn over every stone to make sure that there's something there you can work with and that, that it makes it worthwhile both for you and them. I, I see that we're, we're starting to push along on time here. Maybe a few other questions and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Something that I think is important in the public, in the public venture capital space is the relationships with retail investors. So, so in today's market, how do you say they, the, they play a role and, and compared to institutional investors? Yeah, well, I mean, I think 
retail investors play a critical role in the development of a company. I mean, I think that more so now than ever, I mean, certainly where we saw, you know, in the last couple of years, the emergence of the retail investors, I mean, we saw, you know, just to pick a sector that was very hot and I mean, not so much now, but like we saw in the cannabis space, for example, it was, there was a lot of retail investors that, that drove a lot of the, the underlying deal dynamics in, in that space. So clearly, you know, when you have a the retail investors sort of mobilized on a space, they can be extremely, extremely powerful. With that in mind, that's to some degree one of the foundations, I, I would say, that I impress upon companies in the technology and innovation space that do not under, underestimate the value of the retail investor. In fact, you know, they can be very, very powerful. And in fact, when we're helping companies do their smaller raises, you know, these are investors, for lack of a better word, that are, you know, I mean, they're sophisticated, they're high net worth, but, you know, I would say the more kind of come on the from the retail side of it than, than on the institutional side of it, right? So it really is important to keep the, the retail investor engaged. And, you know, there's definitely methodologies, I think, that are, are necessary to, to try to disseminate your news as widely as possible so that, you know, you are keeping investors sort of aware of and engaged in your the developments of your company, for sure. I like that point of you saying that even high net, in, high net worth individuals side more on the side of retail than they do of, of um, institutional. And there was a different way you approach that relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, I think that it's somewhat of a fluid analysis, I would say. But, you know, generally speaking, if like if an institution is, is going to be writing, I would say, or I would argue our institutions write checks depending on the size of the deal. I mean, you can even characterize an institutional order, you know, something, you know, greater than hundred or $200,000. But certainly there are investors out there that, you know, want to invest 10, 20, 30, $40,000 at a time. And, and those are very important checks for, you know, a company that's, that's starting out. But those types of investors definitely fall into a, a certain special category of, of retail investor that, that's, that's critical for a company looking to get its, uh, its business underway. Mm. So, you know, we, you know, off our platform, you know, we do try to tailor solutions to um, some of the special needs of our, um, of our retail investors. I see. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think that's a really important point to be, you know, that categorizing of retail investors even. So that's, that's yep. an interesting perspective that I think will be, be beneficial to, to the audience. The next thing I want, I want to touch on as, as we wrap up the interview is um, you seem to do a lot of international work uh, and, and more specifically with Israel. And we're actually seeing international interest come in and starting to list on the, the TSX venture and so on. And so what do international firms need to know about the Canadian capital markets? I think international firms can look at Canada as an excellent gateway to North America. I think that in many instances, look at, say, the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange as sort of the, the gateways, but that's certainly true. But the reality is, is that it really only makes sense for a certain subset of companies that have reached a certain critical mass. What I've said to companies in sort of international jurisdictions is that they need to look at Canada as a very sophisticated capital markets destination that allows them to access capital on the same terms as, say, some of the larger U.S. exchanges, but with with some some of the there's a bit of a less of a regulatory burden here in Canada, I find, and that 
people are comfortable investing on the, the Toronto Stock Exchange, for example. And so you can really have investors from all over the world invest into a company with the knowledge knowing that they can go public here and that they will have a very sophisticated investment banking community, investment dealer community that will support them in, in the aftermarket. And if they still have designs to go to, you know, NASDAQ, you know, the reality is, is that you can even look at Canada as sort of a logical stepping stone to uh, for for that process and do it in a two-stage process. So whereas a $50 million deal won't be that uh, interesting or attractive to bankers in the United States, that that's still in Canada, I would find that, that that's a very heavily supported amount and, and they can go and access that capital here. And then, you know, as their business grows and they want to go raise three, $400 million, you can still do that in Canada, but you can now also cross list on the United States in the US and have the benefit of accessing both markets. There's a lot of stuff that can be done. Um, I find that the Canadian markets do a- offer a lot of financial flexibility to companies looking to access uh, public markets. It's a great platform here in Canada, for sure. It is neat to see, and I think there's something we do have something special with our Canadian markets, and especially with the venture and, and the ability to move up to the TSX and then even under the to the the biggest of the big boards being the Nasdaq and the NYSC over time. So there's a powerful thing that we have in our Canadian markets, and I like hearing messages from people like yourself about how it is and the importance of it. So thanks for that. Yeah, what for I'd sure. like to do is just perhaps just wrap up our discussion here because I know we're. We're starting to get long on time. So do you have any final thoughts or final advice for the listeners being management audiences and entrepreneurs who are looking to raise capital? What could you share with them to leave us off with? Yeah, I, w- I would just suggest that you know they do take the time to meet with a number of players. If they're looking to go public or are already public. You know, they should invest time in, in networking with the uh, different uh, firms. Every firm has their sort of strengths and weaknesses and, and really it's not a one size fit all. I find that, you know, it's important to work with probably one or two firms longer term in order to make sure that their needs are being met. To take the time to invest in developing deep relationships with uh, capital market professionals like myself. It is always easy to do a deal perhaps as a one-off, but Companies do experiences, challenges, and it's, it's important to have a network that can support you in the good times and also in the times when you're having challenges. So be, be prepared to, to roll up your sleeve, create alliances, create support networks. So that will enable you to be in the long term successful as you're pursuing a, a strategy in the uh, public markets. Yeah. And you know what, what I'm hearing there and what that alliance or those alliances also include your investment banker. So I think that should be Absolutely. a point that I'm going to emphasize. Um, and now, finally, Howard, I, well, thanks for taking the time and, and sharing your experience and all. Where can listeners follow your work or get in touch with you if they need? How can, um, where can they find you at? Sure. Well, I'm always, I'm actually uh, pretty uh, active on LinkedIn. So if people want to reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn, or you can go to our website and I'm, uh, my contact's there at MackeyResearchCapital.com. And yeah, those are some of the best ways to just sort of connect in my emails on the website. I'll put the, uh, I'll put those in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. 
For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.